We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 today. So if you have your Bibles, I'll encourage you to move over to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to pick up on the uh, 6th through 13th verses today. That's going to be our focus. And um, we're going to look into that. Last week, we had looked hard at what it means to judge and be judged. And we were asking that question, really, what are we called to do? Are we called to to be judge and jury over people? Or are we called to to make sure that we are measuring and... and, uh, shall we say, metering our behavior by a holy standard and submitting ourselves to that standard. Even as we encourage or have to admonish one another in the faith, that we're constantly making sure that we're not um, <clears throat> exalting ourselves over other people. And so the opposite of being judgmental is really being humble. And so what Paul was doing as he and Sosthenes are encouraging and engaging the church in Corinth is they're saying, you know, the opposite of being judges is to be humble. And when you do need to to call people into account, you do that from a position of humility. So that's what we're going to engage today. So let me encourage you um, to look particularly to the subject of humility uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 6 to 13. Let's zero in really on this verse right here. It says, the purpose is that none of you will be arrogant, favoring one person over another. For who makes you so superior? What do you have that you didn't receive. What do you have that you didn't receive? So let's let's think about this as Americans for just a minute. We are wealthy. We are empowered. Uh, we are lavished with opportunity and possessions and, and enough food and, and all those things that just make it possible for us as a country to to to, to flourish. But where did that come from? Did you do it? You see, you have nothing that wasn't given to you. And as we approach this concept in Scripture of what humility is and what it is to remember where it came from, we're confronted with this. Americans like to think of ourselves as self-made people. Those of us who've pulled ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We worked our way through. We did it. I remember particularly in grad school looking at the other students whose parents were paying their way, right? And they didn't have to do anything but just show up. Even in college, there was a level of responsibility, mom, that you and dad gave to me. You're still going to have to work if you want to do these things. And so I had to work some, but I remember looking with so much contempt at the the kids whose parents paid for everything, and they just paid off their credit card every month, and they were constantly going skiing and and eating out with all their friends and playing and just constantly out socializing, and I had to go to work, (laughs) and I got really resentful. And so by the time I got done with college, I kind of had this attitude like, yeah, I had to really work for it. I earned my degree. And especially after grad school, yeah, I earned my way, man. I've gone hungry a few times. I've done it. I know what it is to make it myself. And I got this attitude of kind of arrogance. And some of you guys, we do, we do this as people. We think, I did it. I'm a self-made person. But, but let's get some perspective. Did you, did you lay the roads that you drove on to get back and forth to that job that helped pay for, for school? Did you, did you build that school with your hands? Was it your endowment that made sure that those professors were provided? Hey, that work that you do, did, did you create the market? Are you at Wall Street every day making sure there's stability in the financial system so that there's a market for you and the stability of that dollar? Did you go and and build the nation that you exist in that made possible that market and your job and your freedom to do so and your safety to be within a land of rules and regulations and law and order and financial security? Wait a minute. What do you have that you didn't receive that you're not the recipient of? 
you're not an island. Even the most accomplished among us owes and has a dependency on other people and their efforts to get where we are. So really the idea of being a self-made person is a myth. Are we tracking here? How many of you in your faith just found Jesus all by yourself one day? You're just wandering along along and went, you know, I think there's a holy creator God and he came, he was born of a virgin and and took on flesh and he lived a sinless life and and died an intentional death and on the third day rose again from that grave and conquered death so that I could be saved and and if I call on his name, I can be saved and, and love him with all my heart, confess him with my mouth, I'm a child of God, you know, I should do that. No, you, you came to faith and understanding because faith comes by hearing and hearing by, did you write the word of God? No. So what do you have that you didn't receive? So you see, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And, and what does God ask of you? What does he require of you? Micah 6, 8 says, what, the Lord has shown you what is good, people. And what does he ask of you? that you love justice, that you show mercy, and you walk humbly before your God. That's what he asks of you. So today in preface, I would simply say that genuine godliness is demonstrated in humility. If there's any one attribute of Christianity that needs to be the highest, the most honored, the most sought after, the most praised and emulated, it's humility, not arrogance. Not supposing that you got it because you worked for it, but understanding that you walk humbly before your God, and in doing so, you have nothing that you didn't have given to you. None of you should be arrogant. That's godliness. So let's take a look at what Scripture has to say in a broader context, because I believe Scripture speaks wisdom um, on this subject of humility. So let's begin with probably the perfect picture of humility. Let's start with James. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will lift you up in honor. Micah 6, 8 that I just said, Now, O people, the Lord has told you what is good, and this is what He requires of you, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before your God. Can we say that, that last part of that verse together? And this is what He requires of you, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Matthew 20, 28, Jesus demonstrated a spirit of profound humility, saying that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In the Proverbs, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. I'll be honest with you. I like the old King of James with translation there, that God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I think that's a great translation. Second uh, Chronicles seven fourteen. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. A modern uh, generation just before us, C.S. Lewis said, "True humility is not thinking less of yourselves; it's thinking of yourself less." And I think, I think all of these verses and all of this wisdom from Lewis to Paul to, uh, to Matthew to Micah, what we're hearing is this, humility is a mark of godliness. So how do we get there? 
How do we get to a point where we as Americans who kind of, uh, we value uh, our braggadocious, self-made, uh, um, uh, I'm my biggest fan, uh, I'm the hero, our social media, look at me, look at me culture. How do we move from that to a place of humility where our, our joy comes from lifting others up and empowering others and praising others? How do we get to that point where what we're known for is not what we've done, but who we are and how we love other people and reflect Jesus in our attitude and our posture at all times? Well, there's a process. And what we're going to look at today are going to be three um, uh, perspectives which help grant humility. So we're going to go into three areas, very distinct and and profound. First of all, um, the perspective which grants humility is this, recognizing that there exists people who are faster, smarter, and more skilled than you, right? You learned that lesson yet? Excellent. Number two, accepting the spiritual realm's reality and how small we are in contrast. Yeah, the pastor's going to talk about angels and demons today, so freak you out a little bit. You'll love it. Thirdly, developing an awareness of the gospel as the standard of worth, your identity in Christ. So those are the three areas we're going to engage today. So if you're a note taker, there's actually a one, two, three today. Hey, you like that? So here we go. Let's start with number one. Let me start a little bit of an example. Kim was talking with me about this the other day, so I'll do my best to get it all right, babe. Um, Troubadours. They were the musicians and, and the actors and the performers. They traveled from city to city to town to town, and they brought their, their talent with them. When they came into town, they would sing the songs, and, and they would tell stories with the songs, and they would learn from town to town about this town's culture and this town's style of music, and they would take it with them from town to town. And so when the troubadours came, it was really exciting to hear what they were doing. And how did the troubadours make a living? Well, when they went from town to town, people would pay them for what they did. And so this traveling uh, of the musicians and, and, and of the talented people, we still have in our society today. When you go to see concerts or, or performances, we went last night to see Tim Hawkins. Anybody else go to Tim Hawkins last night? Yay, it's a lot of fun. And so I'm deaf, by the way. Did anybody else, did, who was running the sound? Lord have mercy. There was a teenager. That's who was running the sound. It was deafening. And it's a teenage boy, I'm pretty sure. And so uh, it, was, it, was a, it was a good concert. But what we, you hear Tim's product because he comes to your town. And so you pay the, the troubadour of the talent to come. Okay, put a pin in that and hang on to it. There's a young girl. Her name is, is Clara. And Clara is terribly talented. She's just good. And she seemed to come from the womb that way. And in her small town, she performed at a lot of the weddings and a lot of the ceremonies. And she played her violin even one year on the homecoming parade when it went through town, you know, on the, the little float. Clara was up there just sawing away, doing her thing. Devil went ground to Georgia, went down to Georgia. She's just doing her thing. And everybody said, oh, Clara, you're the best. You're the best. You're the best. And so everywhere she went, everybody saw Clara in her town as the best violinist ever. So what they tell her, Clara, you got to go make a name for yourself. You're the best. And Clara was the best in her town, and she believed it. So she got her plane ticket, and she went to New York City. And she got off the plane, and she got on the subway, and she got off that subway station down in Manhattan, and she's ready to go up, and she's going to open her case and make a name for herself. You know what Clara realized? She realized that the players that were there in the subway. It's called busking, by the way. They open their little case and people throw money in. You know, you get paid for this. I learned that yesterday, by the way. But uh, Clara got off and she saw a couple of those people that were buskers and they were playing in the subway. And you know what Clara realized? They were better than she is. And they're playing in the subway. You see, what she came to the realization of, there's always somebody who's smarter, faster, 
more talented, better looking, more skilled than you. You didn't invent the violin. You didn't invent business. You didn't invent singing. Somebody else did that. Other people are better than you. And what you have to realize, if your identity comes from you thinking you're the best, there's an incredibly small percentage of people who really are the best, and you're probably not one of them. And when you can realize that, you can start to understand that's not your identity. It's part of what you do, and you do your best. But your identity can't, from, can't come from thinking somehow you're the very best at it. What that leads to is disappointment. Have you ever known an athlete, a young athlete? Oh, he's good. I mean, he, he's really good. He seems to be the fastest kid at school. And he does great. And then you go to those regional competitions, and suddenly there's some people there that actually offer you some competition. And it comes time for college, and, and you start to compete at that college level, and you realize when you're dealing nationally, there's some people a whole lot better than you are. And it's probably not going to make you famous and put food on the table. How many people actually make it into the NFL? And of those, how many actually survive and how many actually have a career past two seasons? You see, it gets smaller and smaller and smaller. If you can learn not to think of yourself more highly than you ought, you're going to be much happier. So let's, let's take a verse, a look at Romans, uh, what Paul has to say about this very thing. He says, for by the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you not to think of yourself more highly than you should. Instead, think sensibly, as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one of you. That sensible word, you could translate that a few different ways and get it across into the English language. Let me tell you another way you could do it. Okay? Think wisely. You know what wisdom is? It's applied knowledge. My grandmother had uh, owls all around her house, and I have, I have at least three of them. I think I got them from the cousins. <laughs> uh, but but she, had, she had those owls around the house. And I remember when I was, uh, oh man, I guess I was, what, 14, 15, uh, I was there in New Orleans, and there was this, this owl was up on the wall, and I said, hey, Granny, what's the owl about? And she said, so you'll make wise decisions. That was all. That was my grandmother. That was the end of the discussion. Uh, but so you'll make wise decisions. Oh. I have that owl in my office, and uh, I think about it a lot. Make wise decisions. Is it wisdom to think that you're the smartest person in the room? No. There's a cure for that. You know what it is? Getting out of your circles. And suddenly you start to realize there's people that are a lot smarter, a lot better, and a lot wiser than you are. And that's okay. Because you don't need to think of yourself more highly than you ought. You know what's wonderful? admiring the wisdom in other people, admiring the fluency, the skill, the artistry, the achievement in other people, and finding your identity in, man, I'm able to appreciate and be a friend to that person and encourage that person. That's who I am. And that is a Christian perspective. That's humility. So rather than continually thinking about how great you are, Think about how great some other people are. That's the first step. The second one we looked at on here, though, um, it, it had to do with this. It said, accepting the spiritual realm's reality and how small you are in contrast. Now, what do I mean by the spiritual realm? Let's listen to Paul's words. Paul's writing, by the way, to the city of Ephesus. How many of you love the book of Ephesians? Isn't that a great book? Isn't that encouraging? When we think of Ephesians, we think of, oh, it's so encouraging, all the neat things in there, and all the encouraging words. Let me tell you why Paul was engaging Ephesus. 
This city was under the control of, of a group of people who were the leaders in these cultic religions. And the biggest one there was the worship of Artemis. Artemis was a god of, just try to get your American minds around it. I know this is going to be a struggle, but she was the, the god of, of sensuality. And so the worship of Artemis made its way into all parts of the culture, the hypersexualized ideas and freedoms and identity in your worship of Artemis. So sexuality was worship. Weird, huh? And so the other things about Artemis is that there was offerings paid to it, and you would have certain outfits or things that you would do with your hair, the way you would dress, that would speak to your connection to and your level of connection to Artemis. And your behavior would be within the patterns of what the worship of Artemis looked like. And this was true of some of the other gods there in Ephesus. They were under the control of that demonically inspired evil religion, the cult of Artemis. And so as Paul is writing to the city of Ephesus, he says this, our struggle, by the way, what struggle? The struggle to live godly lives according to God's standard, to look to what does the scripture say to you, O people, to love justice, to, to love mercy, to walk humbly before your God, to live a lifestyle that is consistent with God's call on you. And so they're struggling because that looks very different than their cultures. Huh? Anybody? Anybody? And so here it goes. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities, against the cosmic powers of darkness, against evil, spiritual forces in the heavens. For this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. Do you think somehow that you are stronger, more powerful, more savvy, more experienced, and just better than the angels and demons that are in the realm just beyond what you can see every day? Do you think somehow when you're struggling against sin that you're only struggling about the, against this by yourself and you can just fight your way through it? Anybody ever had an addiction and try to just fight your way out of it all by yourself? How'd that go for you? Did real good, didn't you? That's a real rare, <laughs> thanks Phil, it's a, yeah, I'm with you buddy, it's a real rare story that somebody says, yeah, but just stop day one, cold turkey, it never went back. Wow, cool. Can you brag a little more? But for, for most people, overcoming a sin requires people around you. And here's a picture that we need to grasp and remember as Christian people. You're not struggling just against people. You're struggling, you're resistant against a battle that's been going on since the very foundations of the earth and even further beyond that. And it's a battle just beyond the veil, a spiritual battle between angels and demons, spiritual beings that are constantly at war. And it happens just beyond what we normally see, but it's very real. And when we as Christians fail to accept that, because we've taken on this idea of a naturalistic worldview, everything can be explained scientifically. And if we just try to explain everything that happens in every struggle by just science and what you can observe and what you can prove, you're going to fall into another really, really arrogant posture. And that's the posture of thinking that you know all there is to know. And you are somehow all-powerful in yourself. And that if it's true, you can explain it and you can understand it. And if you can't explain it or understand it, then it isn't real and it isn't true. And you know what? We all do this to some level. Because we don't want to admit, because it's uncomfortable, that there are creatures that were created before us. 
And, and as, we, as we understand from studying the scriptures, particularly in Ezekiel chapters 14 and 18, that there are beings that were created by God that are a little above us because we were created a little lower than the angels, the scripture tells us. And these beings came to a battle against God at one point in the past and Satan, Lucifer, and his angels were cast out of heaven and they were cast down to the earth and those angels held dominion and rule over this earth and he's the prince of the earth and it's Christ that came to break him and to take away his power and to empower his children on this earth. You see, that realm is real. Scripture tells us it's real but we don't like to think about that because it sounds like the crazy talk. You think Shannon's been reading a Perry Stone book or something but what I'm telling you is this. This reality is something Scripture speaks to frequently. What are angels? Beings created by God to serve God and to serve His messengers? Let's hear a little bit about it from Scripture. In Daniel 10.6, Daniel is going to come into an encounter with an angel. And Daniel describes it this way, I looked up and there before me was a man dressed in linen with a belt of fine gold around his waist. His body seemed as topaz, his face like lightning, his eyes seemed as torches, his arms and legs, the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice sounded like a multitude at once. His appearance were like lightning, his clothes as snow, reports Matthew. Thousands upon thousands and tens of thousands stood before me, and I was dumbfounded, reports Daniel again, nothing to say, completely at awe. Before, the, before Adam and Eve at the Garden of Eden stood an angel who stood with a flaming sword to let them know they can't come back anymore. And around the throne of God are cherubim and seraphim. Angels exist because God created them. Let me tell you something neat about angels and their counterparts, demons. They're more powerful than you. They're way older than you. Would you agree that the longer you live, the more you learn? Would you, would you agree? Can I get a left hand in the air if you believe me? The longer you live, the more you learn. You think there's truth in that? Jason, you with me, man? Believe me? Okay. So if you, if you believe that to be truth, you think angels are a bit smarter than you are? Think they've seen a little bit more than you have? If, you, if, if you're in your 50s and 60s, do you think you've learned something about human nature and how to kind of anticipate how people are going to behave? Hey, who makes a better human resources manager, a 20-year-old or a 50-year-old? <laughs> Why? They got some wisdom. They've learned some things. They've watched this. How about a 300-year-old human resources manager? Think they would know a bit more? Let's assume they can be alive, right? Would that be How about a 30,000-year-old human resources manager? You reckon they're pretty savvy? How about a 3-million-year-old human resources manager? How about a three million year old angel? Think they're smarter than you? Think they're wiser than you? Think they got a little bit more going on up here than you do? Think they can predict your behavior because they've seen it thousands of times before? How about a three million year old demon? Think they're a little bit more savvy than you? Think they know how to push your buttons? Think they know how to tempt you, fool you, try you? You gonna defeat that on your own, are you? You're that good? You're that tough. Here's where humility comes from, brothers and sisters. Understanding that temptation comes from an evil realm. Understand that those forces and those powers are fighting against you, trying to destroy you just beyond the veil. And when we as Christians become keenly aware that in our own power, you're not going to resist that. You're going to fall to that. 
And it's the power of God and the protection of his Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that gives you the ability to take your stand against evil, against temptation. Hey, if Peter could speak out of, out of the impression of evil and Jesus has to turn to him and say, get thee behind me, Satan. He's not saying Peter, Satan. What he's saying is the thoughts and the behavior that you're demonstrating, they come from a tempter whispering, or whispering in your ear and you're allowing that to seem like truth to you. Now, as I say this, I'm watching your expressions. Happened in the first service too. It's people kind of doing this. Eh, I don't know. Kind of sounding like the Pentecostal over there, Shannon. No, I'm not sure I believe all that. Sounds kind of crazy to me. Doesn't fit in with my Newtonian understanding of science. Kind of sounds a little wacky. I get it. Believe me. I was where you were. Kim and I went to Brazil on missions and I got confronted with some things I thought were just fables and mysteries and crazy stories. But the first time I was in a situation where I was confronted with pure, unsophisticated, unleashed evil, I came to the realization that in my own power, I can't resist. I can't stand against that. I can't combat that. And that is trying to oppose the gospel coming into the city and into this region and the love of Jesus Christ and the body of Jesus Christ, the church, being able to be active here is dependent on us handing this battle over to God and letting us do as we're directed, but not trying to be the people that somehow think we can withstand evil on our own. Now, I understand many of you in this room hear that and go, I have no idea what you're talking about. It's okay. I understand others of you are sitting right there going, I've seen that. I know what you're talking about. I don't have words for it, but I know it terrified me. Can I encourage you this way? Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. I can encourage you this way. When the power of the Holy Spirit is upon you, nothing can stand against you. I can encourage you this way. You were called to be an ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ, one who goes and speaks the truth into darkness, brings light into darkness. And when you do, that lightness pushes back the folds of darkness. And that's what we're called to do. And you know where it begins? Here's where it begins. Recognizing that that exists and you don't control it. Understand that the Holy Spirit through you gives you the power to stand when you're tempted and when you're tested and against that unsophisticated and true evil that's in the world around you. And I would even suppose that in our Western sophisticated scientific world that the real humility is recognizing there's things you do not understand. We cannot understand, but God does. And I'm okay with that. You know, you know what that perspective is called? Humility. Wow. There's more we could talk about it. We'll talk about it some other time. The third part of this that we were going to look at this morning uh, has to do with this, developing an awareness of the gospel as the standard of worth. So we began this way. We said that perspective that grants humility begins with recognizing there exist people who are smarter, wiser, faster, better, more talented than you. You're not the penultimate, ultimate human being, right? Anybody in here the greatest musician that's ever lived? 
No. If you raise your hand, you're the perfect example of fail right now. Yeah. Are you the best businesswoman that's ever lived? The best businessman that's ever lived? The best author? The best writer? The best singer? The best architect? The best builder? No. There's always, and that's okay. And that's the beginning of humility. The second one is understanding that there exists a spiritual realm just beyond the veil that we see. And those beings are bigger, more powerful, stronger, smarter, longer lived than us. And it's the power of the Holy Spirit only that gives us the ability to stand against evil. That's why Paul encouraged us to, um, in exactly that way. And then thirdly, developing an awareness of the gospel as a standard of worth. Hey, what are you worth? You ever ask this? What are you worth? Not a dollar amount, but what are you worth? You are worth God becoming flesh, dwelling among us, Submitting himself to death, even the death on a cross, being humiliated and disrespected, dying for you, defeating death, and raised again on the third day. That's what you're worth. You're worth the king of heaven coming down to have a personal relationship with you. Wow. That's your value. In the context of that value, are you flawless? Is that why God loved you? Are, are you... Are you that fantastic that you're the best person in history and that's why God loves you? Think about that. I'm, I'm asking you really seriously here. Are you so wonderful, bless you, that God chose to love you because you're that great? Wow, Saint you, aren't you awesome? No, all of us recognize that we've fallen short of the glory of God. All of us recognize we don't, we don't even begin to measure up to the standard of perfection and holiness. So why would God love us? Because he chooses to. You are his creation. He made mankind to be in a relationship with us because relationships are what we're crafted for. Now listen, in American culture, in the United States, in Sturgeon Bay, in our community, ministry only happens in relationships. And in relationship with other people, we begin to understand what it is to love people and to be loved by people. And our worth and our value comes from understanding that we are a part of community. We are a part of a relationship. We are a piece of a much bigger and beautiful picture, a tapestry that we're woven into, a puzzle that we're put together with. That's where you belong, not as a standalone individual, but as a part of God's great plan. We, the people of Jesus, not you, the person of Jesus, we, the people of Jesus, is the right perspective. So let's unpack that for just a second. As we begin to talk about this, um, I would draw your attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me over there. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 18 uh, through 23. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 18 to 23. I told you to get a physical Bible. Did you bring them? All right, you want these. This is one of those moments. 1 Corinthians 3, it says this. Let no one deceive themselves. If anyone amongst you, among you, amongst you, if anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool so that he can become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. Since it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness, and the Lord knows that the reasoning of the wise is futile. So let no one boast in our human leaders, for everything is yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. Everything is yours, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. What Paul's trying to get across is you are a part of a we. 
the family of Jesus Christ. When Jesus came, he came to be the firstborn among many brethren, which means many brothers and sisters. You are family. And in family, we find our identity and our purpose. Not you exalted over the rest of your family, but you as a member of the family, an important part of the inner workings of God's demonstration of himself in our community. Gifts are given to you. Abilities are given to you. Things are needed from you. You are a part of that family. Without you giving of yourself and being who God made you, the family misses something. Let me, let me move to a slide here that I think illustrates part of what I'd like to get across today. This manifests in three particular ways. The antidote of thinking of ourselves too often or too highly is being in community, all right? Community. The first part of that is when we go and we serve others for the cause of Jesus Christ in the name of Christ. We're here to serve. Not to receive, but just to give. That's one of those first steps of humility within the family. Would you agree? Community service projects, serving somebody in need. Somebody's down on their luck, you're there to help. Somebody needs something, you've got that resource doing that for them. Not for getting something back, not for a paycheck, but to to help and to serve. We do this as Christians within the Christian family and even reaching beyond our walls sometimes. Some of you are wonderful at this. Some of you need to gain that perspective that what we have was given to us and we need to be able to give and to serve and to do for others because we do that in the name of Jesus. The second way is understanding that in life groups, in community groups, in small groups, you learn together, you're challenged together, we're encouraged, we're bolstered. Men's groups, women's groups, family groups, teen groups, children's groups, couples groups. What happens is in those environments, we are building each other up and strengthening one another. Scripture refers to that as iron sharpening iron. You can't sharpen iron with a wood. It just doesn't work. You take a bat and beat an axe all you like, what's going to happen to the bat? But you take the two axes and they're honing and sharpening and allowing Scripture to sharpen them and to be more and more and more like the fine-tuned instrument God's called you to be. And in doing so, we're stronger together. We are stronger together. Ministry happens in relationships, brothers and sisters. There's no such thing as lone wolf Christians. Lone wolf Christians are easily deceived and easily picked off. That's no good. When the church of Jesus Christ stands together, we stand strong and more effective. And then thirdly, there's this this attribute of Christianity that is supporting and encouraging and admonishing and celebrating together. Let me ask you an honest question. Don't raise hands right now, but have you ever messed up? And I mean messed up big time. You ever found yourself in sin and realized, uh... I'm swamped. I'm over my head here. Have you ever discovered one day to your shame that this little private sin of yours has started to own you and control you? Have you ever found that that, that, that guilt has gnawed and gnawed and gnawed away to where it's taken away your sense of identity and your strength and your ability to love other people and accept love from others? Have you ever come to that realization that this obsession of yours has damaged your relationship with Jesus and the people around you? If so, I'd like to welcome you to the human race. Each and every one of us have areas where we fail. How about this? Have you ever had something really great happen to you? I mean, like, woo a big-time achievement in career or school or family or, or a stock investment or a choice or, or your team won. You just want to celebrate with people and looked around, there's nobody to celebrate with because you ain't got no friends because you had invested yourself in other people's lives. 
Because you're so obsessed with job or work or hobby or self that you become myopic. And when it's time to celebrate with others, you look around and there's nobody there. Of course. You know why? Because we're humans. We do this. Do you know what part of the family of Jesus Christ is all about? It's celebrating together. It's struggling together. It's extending forgiveness and having forgiveness given back to you. It's, it's holding people accountable and getting called out yourself and submitting to that with one another, as uncomfortable as that may be. You know why? Because when you mess up in the family of Jesus Christ, you know what the family does? They wrap you up and love you. You know what happens if you mess up in culture in Sturgeon Bay? They'll destroy you, destroy you in the press, on the, in the newspapers, on the radio, at the grocery store, at the coffee shop. They will destroy you if you mess up. You know what the body of Jesus offers to a community where that's a normative behavior? Something totally opposite. Somebody messes up, you know what the church does? Come here, we love you. Come on, let's walk through this together. You messed up. Let's not do that again. Let's walk through this together and let's heal because we love you. Because that's how Christians act. Can you imagine if that was a normal behavior of every church in our community? If all 60-something churches on the Door County community behaved just like that, do you think it'd transform our community? Yeah, it sure would. You know where it starts? Right here. The people of Jesus acting like the people of Jesus. Sturgeon Bay Community Church has committed that 2019 is going to be our year of belonging. And what we want to do is make sure that all of us who are part of this community find our way into life groups, find our way into serving together, volunteering together, pouring into each one, one another's lives, and being a part of the family of Jesus Christ, being we, belonging here making membership a commitment, making pouring into other lives a commitment, making using what you're good at a part of the fabric of this church community so we can serve one another and we can serve Sturgeon Bay in a way it desperately needs. That's the family of Jesus. So today what we've looked at, brothers and sisters, is a look at humility. We've, we've understood that recognizing there's always going to be human beings who are bigger, better, faster, smarter, better, more talented than you. That helps us be humble and recognize who we really are. We've recognized that there's a spiritual realm out there, a battle that happens just beyond the veil that's very real, that's more powerful than you, and you depend on Jesus and the Holy Spirit's power and dwelling to be able to resist it and thrive in it. And then thirdly, we recognize that in community comes our strength and our identity in Jesus Christ. All of that helps produce humility in the life of the Christian. What was is what is. The truth of Scripture then is the truth of Scripture now. So I would just encourage you to remember that He has shown you people what is good. And the chief among those is to walk humbly before your God.